This is Aliens and Artists, Episode 3, Part 1, with Sean Esbjorn Hargens. I'm your host, Stuart Davis. Sean is the creator of Exostudies.org, a learning portal which offers a master course in an integrative metafield exploration of the psychological, sociological, and scientific implications of the UFO phenomena in all its empirical and mysterious facets. When I first began discussing these topics with Sean years ago, he was in the midst of building some of the most sophisticated and astonishing models that I'd ever seen, and they had been inspired by his experiences in these various enigmatic realms with non-human intelligences. Check the show notes to see photos of those models. Sean, I'd like to start with a two-part question. What have your personal experiences been, whether it's contact with entities or seeing craft? What led you on to this incredible endeavor, this masterwork that you're doing with exostudies? The second part is, do those formative experiences connect to the models that you were building when we first began conversing on these topics? Yeah, great. Uh, we're, we're diving right in. That's awesome. Um, so, yeah, you know, the first part of the question is, it's an interesting question for me because I often, you know, I read a lot of the experiencer, experiencer literature and, you know, contactees, abductees, you know, the, the full gamut of people who report and have experiences of, of different types and, and kinds of, of contact. And, and I often feel like I'm not an experiencer. I'm not a contactee. Like, you know, I don't have these big, amazing experiences that are so often reported in the literature. However, when I really sit down and think about it and sense into my journey and how I've ended up to where I am, there are quite a few interesting experiences. And, you know, as you well know, with your own, you know, 60 second experience, it doesn't take much of an experience to like rock your world and change your life. (laughs) (laughs) These experiences are often so, you know, filled with, you know, potency that, you know, so I think I'm in an ongoing process of kind of accepting that I'm more of an experiencer than I sometimes acknowledge or realize that I am. Mm -hmm. (laughs) You know, so it's, um, you know, so, so that's one layer of the inquiry for me. So I've had a number of experiences of what I would call multidimensionality. And, you know, I've integral and integral theory and integral thinking have, have been my mainstay, you know, since I was in my, you know, mid twenties. And so integral or integrative has always been like kind of my go-to word or concept or notion. But about, I don't know, 10 years ago, that started to shift to multidimensionality. And, mm-hmm. and so as I started having more and more of these experiences, and in a sense, realizing that the integral frame and approach wasn't giving me the handlebars that I needed to make sense of this multidimensionality. And, and maybe we can get into that at some point of just the ways integral theory can and, and you know, needs to grow and develop to better support this range of experience. But so I've had several experiences of trilocation where I've been in a meditative state or some kind of process and I've all of a sudden had the experience of being in three places at once. And generally speaking, those other places are in other realms or dimensions, um, maybe even other timelines. 
and you know, they've been short. Um, but like I said, you know, it, these experiences don't have to be very long to leave a very deep lasting impression on you. Yeah. I've had several experiences of um, being an alternative, being in an alternative um, self, a parallel life, if you will, um, as various non-human intelligences, including the mantis um, and, and also some ET or extra dimensional races that I don't know or recognize in terms of like a name or a label, um, but had a first person experience of being one of those beings. Um, and I've had downloads and this gets into the second part of the question around the, what I call the harmonic Enneagram. Um, and this is maybe probably the one that's most equivalent for me to your mantis experience. Like, um, it's, and it will, and so I'll come back to that. Um, I've had experiences of light language, of, of speaking light language and having that come through. And I've had just a variety of conversations with who I consider to be seers or psychics or light workers. Like none of those labels really fit, but basically people who are awakened to their own galactic embodied contextual reality and often are having, you know, daily regular encounters with non-human intelligences and with craft and are like, they're just really fully immersed in that um, world space. And, and I've worked with a number of these people as teachers and mentors and guides. And, and in that context, many of the conversations I've had with them where they're relaying information or pointing out things have served as triggers for my own consciousness, my own experiences and have kind of opened up you know, different layers of recognizing my own multidimensionality and my own connection to a variety of non-human intelligences. Um, and all of this really began when, you know, my first child was born, Tatiana, and I could no longer practice in a formal way um, Tibetan Buddhism and Diamond Heart, um, the Diamond Approach with A.H. Almas. And, and this kind of created a a spiritual void where I wasn't, we weren't able as a, as a young family with a young kid to do the, the 10 day retreats that my wife and I were doing on a regular basis, you know, and the, you know, weekend retreats. And we tried for the first year, but as any parent likely would recognize like that, that becomes an uphill <laughs> battle. And so that's the real Tantra. Yes. Yeah. And all the Buddhists were getting pissed off at us because we were bringing our kid to the, the retreat. <laughs> Very un-Buddhist about it i know that syndrome too well <laughs> so so this was interesting because i was totally happy to just stay as a, a serious practitioner within those two traditions but when those kind of were taken away just through life being too chaotic and demanding as as young parents what emerged over about six to nine months in that kind of space where i, I didn't have a formal practice anymore was this really strong connection to work with um, the intelligence of, and subtle beings associated with the natural world, mm. um, which go by any number of names. And, and so I started leaning into that and exploring that. And, and that took me into the realm of, of magic, essentially, and the occult and, and hermeticism and you know, a variety of traditions that are not very well represented in integral theory, to say the least. Um, and, and so this, this really asked me to, to turn towards my 
soul is kind of how I understand it. Like I, there was like this deep impulse and there was kind of this self gnosis. There was this quality of gnosis and, and I had to trust that I, I had, I had to lean into that even though it was uncomfortable um, because I was a card carrying integral theorist. I was a card carrying Buddhist. I was a card carrying diamond heart practitioner and none of which really made room for working with subtle beings in the way that I was being drawn to. And the more I worked in that space and kind of, shall we say, the more I went into the earth, um, in, in, in some sense, literally, the more that took me out into the galaxies. And, and this became very disorienting at a certain point because, you know, if you talk to the people who work with fairies, they don't want anything to do with the people who talk about aliens. And if you talk with the people who are interested in aliens, they don't really want anything to do with fairies unless they're trying to explain away um, the fairy lore by, you know, linking it to the abduction lore. Yeah. And so I, I found all of this very unsatisfying and, and, and somehow missing some key elements here. And then I read the book, you know, Meet the Hybrids. And in that, you know, Jackie, Jacqueline Smith and... Vanessa Lamort had chapters, and in both of those chapters, those women talked about their work and experiences of working with both what we might call the elementals and the fae, and working with the galactics. And this was such a moment for me because it, it all of a sudden I realized that I wasn't crazy, <laughs> and that mm -hmm. that I these were distinct types of non-human intelligences, and they shouldn't be confused necessarily with one another. Though there's a whole interesting conversation around that. So as I started working with them and starting making better sense of my own experiences that included the elemental realm and the galactic realm and the various intelligences associated with each of those realms. And, you know, part of where I ended up is realizing that some of my strongest connections, you know, my star family, if you will, are essentially galactic elves, um, you know, in a very token-esque sense hmm. that they are, you know, you know, six to seven feet tall, you know, pointing years very regal looking and so they're essentially the elves on other planets you know? and mm. so um you know and, and how to make sense of all of this you know that's still an ongoing process as as you know because you know yeah. um you know partly because of just sorting through our own experience in a rigorous spiritual hermeneutic fashion but also given the culture we find ourselves embedded in and the way we've internalized doubting ourselves around these phenomena and, and how to sort through it. You know, it's, we're not really supported by the culture and within, you know, the experiencer culture, you know, there's a lot of support, but it also is saddled with a lot of paradoxes and challenges and, you know, dynamics that don't always make it easy to um, make meaning of all of this in any quick way. Yes. To all of that, this almost seems to be a feature an intrinsic feature of contact. The feature being you ask someone this question, what's the weirdest thing that ever happened to you? And people will say, you know, nothing really weird has ever happened to me. Then they're like, well, there was this <laughs> one time that I eloped with a succubus. <laughs> and I don't know, Sean, if I've ever directly asked you that question. So I appreciate hearing your response. And I wonder which aspects of what you related tie into those models that you were building when we first started discussing these topics? 
Yeah, yeah. So I'm glad you you brought us back to that piece because I want I wanted to go into that. So, and this was one of the earlier experiences, you know, that kind of set the stage, if you will, for much of what came later that I, you know, described in brief just a few moments um, to you. Uh, so, you know, around, you know, early, you know, I think the end of 2016, uh, I had an experience. I around the Enneagram system. And I've worked with the Enneagram for a long time for, you know, over, you know, but basically 20 years. And the Enneagram is a personality system that has as a central feature, an interesting sacred geometric symbol that Gurdjieff created or, you know, or is associated with Gurdjieff, the, the Russian mystic. And it essentially represents nine points. And those points are often taken to represent different personality types, but there's a lot of other esoteric layers to it. So this is a system that I've always loved and been very drawn to and, and worked very deeply with and taught at graduate school level. And, um, you know, I often joke it saved my marriage on a number of occasions because it's helped my wife and I sort through uh, dynamics that we are playing out that were less about us and more about just these deep structures of consciousness that each of us express through our particular types. So mm -hmm. um, early on, when I started working with the Enneagram, there's a set of what I think of as harmonic triangles or triads that Hudson and Riso, two authors in the space, have talked about and present in their book, Wisdom of the Enneagram. And early on, when I ever looked at those triangles, I always had this, this strong feeling that was kind of almost odd that there were more, there were more of those harmonic triads in the system. And, and, I, and I've always just attributed that to my powerful metacognitive capacity for pattern recognition. And, and maybe it is just that, but, but I think there was something else going on, which we'll get into. But so there was this, you know, maybe for 10 or 15 years, there was just this intuitive sense that there's, there's more of these triangles in the system than what are currently being presented. So then fast forward uh, to, you know, the end of 2016 and I believe I was coming back from Brazil where I was doing a client engagement and I was on the plane, though it might have started happening before I got on the plane. And I had taught the Enneagram there. And so I kind of had reimmersed myself in that material. And so it was very kind of prominent in my awareness. And I think this intuition that there were more triangles just kind of exploded into my being. And I started mapping them out. I started basically saying, okay, I, I'm going to explore this. I want to get into this and figure out what's going on here. So I got the Enneagram diagram and I started mapping out the different possibilities and, and kind of following this intuitive sense. And I remember being on the plane. It was a night flight. So the lights were out. Everyone's sleeping. A few people are watching, you know, their TVs. Um, but it was pretty dark. You know, no one was moving around. And I had my little light on and I was just, you know, furiously, you know, trying to map out all these triangles. This led me to basically identifying 27 different harmonic triangles that have different numbers in each corner and have a different plus, minus, or equal sign in each corner. And, and I cut these out into equilateral triangles because I had this part of the download was in the typical Enneagram system, these are presented as triangles with different shapes. Um, they're not all equilateral. But I, the, the download in part communicated to me 
that yes, that's the way it looks in a two-dimensional diagram, but if you pull this out into three-dimensional space, they're actually equilateral triangles. And so that was like the first key. So I made these 27 equilateral triangles with numbers and plus minus equal signs connected to each point. And I cut them out and I had them on the table, all as flat piece, you know, pieces of paper. And, and I began trying to figure, I said, this is a puzzle. Like, how do I fit this together? Um, and so I started just like looking at numbers and plus minus equal signs, trying to figure out what is the pattern of how these 27 triangles fit together. And, and essentially what happened is I became Richard Dreyfuss's character, Roy Neary in Close Encounters of the Third Kind, <laughs> right? With the potatoes, yeah. mashed potatoes. Yes. Yeah. I was staying up super late at night for, you know, weeks on end trying to model this out. And I started getting sticks and toothpicks and, 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 and trying to figure out what is the three-dimensional shape here. I started to realize that what was being created were octahedrons. And octahedrons are one of the five platonic solids. And then I started realizing that there were lots of octahedrons that were being made. And that then these octahedrons fit together into a meta-octahedron. That if I combined these octahedrons that were made out of these triangles, these harmonic triangles, um, and I've, I identified a few patterns um, of how you combine the numbers and the plus minus equal signs. And, and that I ended up, if you combined 15 octahedrons and made a meta-octahedron, and there was a series of geometric models that I started putting together that essentially there was kind of two types of triangles that I was working with. And this led me to two different models. And so part of the issue was how do I integrate this? And, and, I, and then I, I ended up creating a, this meta-octahedron that has 15 smaller octahedrons in it, all of which represent the Enneagram system as a three-dimensional um, geometric form. And, and I knew nothing about sacred geometry before all this started. But when I, there was this particular moment where I finished this final model and, and I had it on the kitchen table and it was, you know, like 10 or 11 o'clock at night, everyone was asleep. And when I looked at it, there was this, this relief in my mind stream that that's it. It was like, I was recognizing the form that had been put into my awareness. It was like, I was finally seeing what was inside me that I couldn't see. It was like, I was finally able to scratch the itch. It was like I finally completed the download. I finally had taken what had put inside me through this download process. And the part of why I call it a download is that it felt like it came from outside my consciousness. And I don't know how to describe it other than that, but somehow it felt like it had been inserted into my awareness stream. Mm -hmm. um, and the more I worked with that and worked with some of the people who I was you know, being mentored by at the time, there were connections to Metatron. There were connections to the Arcturians, to the um, Pleiadians. You know, like there were a number of connections that, you know, and part of what I realized was what I had created is essentially the blueprint for a sonic technology, for a sound system, for a kind of a galactic sound device. Um, and it's also connected to the Hawthors. And, you know, so like there was just kind of all these links started happening and, and, that process for me, like your Mantis experience, 
there was something about it that I, I couldn't deny. As much as I kind of tried to rationalize it away or just explain like, oh, I just got interested in sacred geometry and I just decided to create this. And like that, I, that was never satisfactory to mm-hmm. me. It was like I, I had to get on my knees and bow and say, oh, okay, I get it. Like there's something going on here that I don't understand and I can't explain. And it's galactic in nature. We will put photos of those models in the show notes. Uh, It's unmistakably an other order of creativity. It connects directly to the very reason we created this podcast. That question, what happens to people's creativity when any variety of contact occurs? And that links to my next question, which is, are we in the midst of a depth crisis? If you look at the biosphere, we have deforestation, insect collapse, acidification of the oceans. If we turn our attention to the interior corollaries of such collapse, such as the mass extinction of languages, etc., is there an interior corollary to the sixth extinction? Yeah, it's a very provocative line of of consideration. And I I love the frame that you're highlighting that, you know, there's an interior corollary to the exterior extinction crisis. And I think we are faced with a crisis of meaning making. Um, You know, we we only have to look at this post-truth era to, to get an immediate sense of kind of certain ways that shows up. And, you know, Part of what I love about the UFO phenomenon, the high strangeness, um, is when you really take seriously those phenomenon, and I think there's a lot of reasons we need to and should take serious the whole range of that you know, spectrum of phenomenon, it, it doesn't fit in our categories. It's, it's both interior and exterior. It's a solid craft and it's all of a sudden gone and like immaterial, you know, it's you know, like so many of these phenomena have this feature that I refer to as doubleness, um, where it's kind of, it's, you know, it's betwixt and between, it's, it's subtle and it's gross, it's physical and it's energetic, it's like, it's neither, it's both. And, and so I think part of what's happened for me in, in getting this download and feeling the drive that came with it, where it's like, I, I would not have been able to stop, I could not stop. Like, there was like, there were was a, there was, it was like the muse. It's like something took over. And it wasn't until I saw that, what I'm calling that final model, where something could relax in me and like that exhausted part of me all of a sudden was like realizing, okay, that's it. Like that's what I've been trying to create. Like now I see it. I recognize it. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so going through that process, it, it, it deconstructed a lot of my, my reference points around meaning making and who I am and who I'm not and what this world is about and the different layers and dimensions to reality. And, and in a sense, kind of, you know, it, it deconstructed, you know, the egoic self in a sense, um, you know, and as a Buddhist practitioner and a diamond heart practitioner, like I'm very familiar and have been engaged in that process for a long time using those practices in those traditions, but there was something different you know, there was a way in which this complemented those efforts. It, it added a different aspect to it. it. It gave me new reference points. And, you know, I think there's a way in which the UFO phenomenon, the experiencer phenomenon is, is, 
inviting us and Jacques Vallée and others, Whitney Strieber and others point to how this, it's an evolutionary force that we're dealing with. It, it's transmuting us. And, and there was something about going through this process with these geometric forms where like it transmuted me. Um, and it, it, I see the world with different eyes and there, I don't, I see a blending of exterior and interior. I, those aren't as, as reified as they used to be in my daily experience. It's like, you know, I'm awake in a dream. I'm, you know, I'm in a dream awake, you know, like that these, you know, like there's this ways in which multiple states are occurring simultaneously, you know, in, in this, uh, one of the trilocation experiences I had, I was in a meditative retreat with Dan Brown and while I was meditating and following his verbal, you know, guidelines, pointing out instructions, I, as, you know, is often the case in Buddhist practice, I had my eyes slightly open. I had all my, you know, orifices open, you know, to be completely open to reality. So I could see I was in a room. I could hear his voice. I could sense the people around me. So I was, I was aware sensorially of my surround. At the same time, I, I, I had this experience of being in a subtle realm and like a, a fairy forest surrounded by beings I could, I could sense but not see and that they were coming and interacting with me and, and, and that there was this whole kind of like psychedelic avatar-like world that I was on and interacting with some kind of set of beings there. At the same time, I also was in this black void and was just this elongated white light. Um, and so... And these were like different realms I was in simultaneously, right? And so this is what I, I find the UFO phenomenon and the high strangeness keeps inviting me and us into is the, the ability and the capacity to occupy multiple, arguably contradictory um, dimensions and realities simultaneously. And, 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 and I think part of the crisis that we're in with our interior meaning making is the, the narratives we've been given are no longer satisfactory for helping us make sense of what's happening inside of us. Um, and so we're, we're being propelled through this evolutionary force um, into a whole new process of creativity and meaning making. And so, yeah, I, I feel there is something very interesting about what you're pointing to, and I'm glad that you're raising it. And I'll be interested to also hear what other people in your podcast series have to say, you know, along these lines. I'm really glad you brought up doubleness. Ever since you introduced that concept, it has stuck with me. It feels like you're planting a flag in a new chunk of land. I have found the idea of doubleness to be truly helpful. So much paradox attends contact experiences, attends non-ordinary experiences, and I would love to hear you talk more about doubleness. I wonder if it's a capacity that we can train, and if it is, how do we train it, and how can it serve us? Yeah, I, I, I think there's, there is an interesting link that I'm just sensing now that you're bringing up what you're bringing up, that there's something connected between the doubleness and the creativity and your experience with the mantis, my experience with the harmonic Enneagram and the download. It's like those experiences force us into doubleness. They, they force us to grapple with it and expand our consciousness and our embodiment to hold doubleness. And so I think that there is something there that's quite interesting. So yeah, to give a little more detail around this notion of doubleness, 
there's three major what I consider liminal boundaries that have emerged in my kind of meta-analysis of all the different ways this doubleness shows up. One is the the boundary between subject and object, uh, between inside and outside. And that's kind of part of what we're just talking about. Um, You know, like the six extinction outside and the internal crisis of meaning inside. The other liminal boundary is self and other. And, you know, as we encounter non-human intelligences, um, that brings us right into, you know, as we start working with parallel lives and past lives and future lives and all of that, you know, like, like the, the, the boundary between self and other gets very blurred. Um, and then the other liminal boundary is space and time. So th- these are the three liminal boundaries that keep showing up in my exploration of exostudies and the UFO and esoteric literature. And there's a number of ways, another, ex- a number of examples of this doubleness. So one is the real unreal. Are UFOs real or are they unreal? There's no evidence. No, there's actually lots of evidence, right? So you get this debate and you, there is this way in which there's no you know, evidence and at the same time, there's so much evidence. So like, what are we talking about here? There's truth and strangeness. Truth is stranger than science fiction. Incre- inc- you know, credible people saying incredible things, right? That's another example of doubleness, mm-hmm. right? Um, trauma transcendence. Often we find those together. Kripal has written and, you know, Strieber has written wonderfully about this um, doubleness. The Richard Dolan talks about disclosure, that it's impossible and it's inevitable. Mm-hmm. Um, disinformation, lies and truth are mixed together, right? Um, UFOs as living machines, um, or sometimes I've seen the phrase organic UFOs, you know, another example of doubleness. Um, the, the contradiction between the, the general public believing in UFOs and aliens and the private position of the, the U.S. governments, you know, that also believes in it but publicly says that's nonsense, right? So you get these weird schisms in UFO culture and you have like the invisible college is another example of doubleness. Um, you know, it's like it's a college, but it's invisible. Um, you know, everyone believes, you know, versus no one's talking about it. So the taboo is a big part of this doubleness. You know, like there's been so many polls done that show that the vast majority of the, the general population believes in this, but none of us talk about it. Mm-hmm. You know, like it's so bizarre. And, you know, I mentioned the waking dreams, dreamlike reality. Um, And, you know, you also have Robbie um, Graham does this great analysis in, you know, his book, The Saucers and the Silver Screen. Um, And he talks about how movies um, around about UFOs actually fictionalize them because, oh, it's just in a movie. Like we know it's fake and they actualize it. Oh, I saw it. So therefore it must be real. So he he refers to this as hyper real. Um, And so there's a way in which movies both actualize the existence of UFOs, make it more real, and at the same time, fictionalize it and make it fantasy, right? And so over and over again, you know, you have these different aspects of the phenomenon that contain this doubleness. And I've, I've come to sense that it's a core feature of our experience of the phenomenon. And I think it's related to the artistic um, um, quest that, that you're exploring with your guests, you know, that there's something about these experiences, you know, even the idea of light language, that's kind of like a doubleness, right? You know, it's like, you know, so there's all these ways in which even a lot of the words that are used to point to these phenomenon have some kind of doubleness of inside and outside mixed, self and other mixed, 
um, you know, channelers like, you know, Lisa um, Royal, you know, a lot of channelers, even Bashar, eventually they come to the point, the really good ones that talk about they're channeling themselves, right? So like, how is that possible? Like what kind of reality do we live in such that that is the case, (laughs) right? Like like we're channeling our future self. So, you know, Bashar is Daryl Ankin's um, future self. So it's both him and not him. Right. You know, and, and, and Lisa um, with, I think it's Sasha is, you know, her other self or future self. Right. So, so this just keeps coming up. And so I think the, the creativity of artistic exploration is a powerful place. You know, it's kind of left brain, right brain. It's like, you know, it's inside and outside. And one of the questions I have around like art and, and ETs is one of the functions that art plays in our current society is it helps make visible what's invisible, right? Whether that's our internal experiences that we're trying to express through artwork or like through cultural symbolism and, you know, kind of, you know, using art to critique social injustices. But what happens to art when we live in a telepathic culture where the, the, the blur between inside and outside is in a sense that that line's not there, right? There's another example of doubleness, you know, like telepathy breaks down the self-other inside-outside barriers. Um, so if we live in a, tele- a largely telepathic space with other beings, be they humans or otherwise, um, and we also live like, you know, in a more peaceful society, you know, like then what happens or are, are what, what becomes the function of art? Because a lot of the functions of art as I see it are basically to kind of express what's inside and make it visible. And so that might not be so necessary in this kind of post, you know, disclosure, you know, galactic world. Um, Or it's to kind of critique the injustices of current society. But if we live in a more peaceful society, um, how might that shift? But then on the flip side, you know, once free energy is out and about and people are not having to be slaves to the nine to five clock and we're able to pursue our passion and actualize our talents such that in effect, we all become artists, right? We all begin to explore and express our highest creative potential. And we're not having to, you know, you know, forego that in order to pay the bills, right? So then what happens when we're free through free energy um, in some sense, where we all can become artists, right? You know, so, so I think there's a lot of interesting questions around this interface between the artist and kind of, you know, the ET encounters and, and, and a post-disclosure world. Be sure to check out part two of our conversation with Sean S. Bjorn Hargens and learn more at exostudies.org and whatsupwithufos.com. Nina Hagen's debut album, None, Sex, Monk, Rock, included the song UFO, featuring lyrics such as, UFOs upon Kyoto, absolute concentration, transcendental meditation, saw it up there, in the air, UFOs upon Kyoto. But Hagen's own real-life UFO encounter occurred in Malibu, California in 1981. She recounts that she was paralyzed by a flying saucer 
which appeared only 30 feet from the window of her home. She was four months pregnant at the time with her daughter Cosma Shiva. She was completely sober, no drugs or alcohol were involved. The craft emitted red, blue, purple, orange, turquoise, and green lights, which were more powerful than any she had ever seen on Earth, but which also did not hurt her eyes. Said Hagen, quote, every single color had such loving energy and was extremely ecstatic, end quote. She was able to gaze into the semi-transparent craft and observe entities working in the interior. One female, two males. Hagen counts it as one of the most important experiences of her life and feels strongly the alien presence is here to help mankind. She told the Los Angeles Times reporter, quote, if you don't believe me, I don't care. I have a wish for world peace and the truth. I would like to see a society that will bring happiness to all life forms. Of course, to the Nazis I appear a rebel, but to the rebels I appear like a normal person from Venus. Names are legally regulated by the German government and Hagen went to court to obtain the right to name her daughter Cosma Shiva, a moniker inspired by her UFO encounter and the Hindi goddess. Hagen has released over 500 songs. Greetings, terrestrial wonder spindles. Stuart here. Thank you for listening. If you like the show, please go to stuartdavis.com and become a patron. Just click on the Patreon button, and in no time at all, I will have all the bail money an artist could want. Wake the 